My name is Abdul Kawi Yusuf. I am the legal advisor of UNESCO. And I'm going to talk today about the role of the African Union in the maintenance of peace and security in Africa. The African Union is the latest institutional manifestation of a long-standing quest for economic and political unity in Africa. It constitutes the present-day concretization, one could say, of the pan-Africanist idealists dedicated to the economic, social, and cultural advancement of the peoples of Africa. When it was created in 2001, uh, it uh, uh, replaced uh, and actually one could say it constitutes a clear break uh, with its predecessor organization, uh, the Organization of African Unity. Uh, and it would be quite interesting to see uh, to what extent the two organizations differ uh, with respect to the maintenance of peace and security in Africa. Uh, these differences uh, are due to historical, sociological, and legal uh, factors. The, the OAU was created immediately after the independence of most of the African countries in 1963. So the main preoccupation of uh, the African countries at the time was with decolonization. <clears throat> the period of the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s, uh, during that period, most of the conflicts also with which the OAU had to deal were interstate conflicts and conflicts related to decolonization and minority rule. Whereas today, uh, the African Union has to deal mainly with internal conflicts, uh, mostly occurring within the borders of independent African states. The reasons and the factors are not only of a historical nature, uh, I mean, the reasons of the differences uh, between the two organizations are not only of a historical nature, they are also of sociological and legal nature. Uh, we, one can say that the African societies have evolved, uh, statehood in Africa has evolved, uh, the expectations of the African population has evolved, and above all, societal and political values in the continent have changed. And as we all know, the role of the law is to translate societal values into pres prescriptive norms, establishing a certain behavior, be this for citizens or for states. Now, with respect to the African societies, and particularly at the pan-African level, at the level of the interstate relations uh, in Africa, 
Uh, what were the principal priorities uh, of political leaders of African populations in the 1960s? Uh, what were their principal preoccupations? Uh, one could say that the values and preoccupations that were put forward during that period related mainly to decolonization, the securing of the independence of these states from colonial powers, national sovereignty, and consolidation of statehood within recognized boundaries. There was also the need and the fight for the elimination of apartheid and minority rule throughout the continent. Now, these are not the preoccupations that inform the policies of Africa's leaders or governments today. What we see articulated today is something that's quite different from the preoccupations and values of uh, the early 60s. And the reason is that decolonization uh, has uh, occurred throughout the continent uh, a long time ago. Uh, South Africa has liberated itself from apartheid, and minority rule has come to an end in uh, uh, other parts of Africa. So at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, we see reflected in interstate relations in Africa and at the pan-African level, values and priorities such as peace and security, respect for democratic principles, human rights, the rule of law and good governance, economic development, rejection of unconstitutional change of government, particularly coup d'etat, elimination of poverty as well as economic and political integration. So these new values, these new societal and policy priorities require a new normative framework. And that is where uh, the break with the OAU comes in, because the OAU in the 1960s was created for a different period, for different preoccupations, for different concerns uh, in Africa, and an organization that was more adapted uh, to the new realities in Africa had to be put into place, and that organization is the uh, African Union. So with the passage from the OAU to the African Union, uh, one can say that we have actually passed from an interstate system that was based in the 1960s up to the 1990s on impenetrability and impermeability of national boundaries. In other words, where national sovereignty and its protection were the main concern of newly independent states and where the Pan-African organization, at the time the Organization of African Unity, was not allowed to look inside the boundaries of states and to see what was happening inside those states. In other words, what happened inside the state was the sole concern of that state. 
So we have passed from that system to a system where the new Pan-African organization, the African Union, is allowed, albeit timidly, to peek into the state, to take a look at it, and to see what's happening inside its member states, and even to take a position on matters traditionally considered to fall within the domestic jurisdiction of the state. Uh, to name a few, uh, these are respect for human rights, uh, the unconstitutional change of government through military coup d'etat, uh, good governance and democracy. So the new system established under the African Union is trying to roll back slowly but surely the curtain of absolute state sovereignty to take a serious look inside the member states of the organization. And of course, this was mainly uh, uh, caused by the fact that the organization is no longer concerned only with interstate conflicts and disputes. It is concerned today with the settlement of internal conflicts. And you cannot deal with internal conflicts unless you are able uh, to see inside the state and to take a position on what's happening inside the state. So the differences I have just described uh, have, are symbolized, actually, from a legal standpoint by certain, by the shift in norms and principles, by the shift of certain norms and principles. And one of the most important uh, principles that has changed as a result of this change of system is the principle of non-interference in the internal affairs of a state under, uh, by the organization. Under the OAU, the Pan-African organization was explicitly prohibited uh, by a charter principle of non-interference to involve itself in the internal affairs of member states. But under the African Union and its constitutional uh, instrument, not only has the principle of non-interference by the organization uh, has been dropped, uh, although, of course, non-interference by one state in the affairs of another state is still there, and as we know, is an extremely important principle of international law. But the AU constitution now contains an opposite principle uh, of the right of intervention in certain circumstances, uh, which has been established under Article 4H of the Constitutive Act of the African Union. So in terms of mechanisms aimed at concretizing the emergency of the new value system, of the new legal system, that, and the new institutional system that has been put into place by the African Union to deal with the maintenance of peace and security in Africa, one of the most important mechanisms is, of course, the Peace and Security Council of the African Union. But another mechanism which is not any less important 
is the NEPAD, the new partnership for Africa's development, which has a peer review mechanism. And this peer review mechanism looks into issues of good governance, democracy, human rights, and respect for the rule of law. So we could say that on the one hand, the NEPAD uh, lends a hand to the preventive diplomacy of the African Union and to the prevention of conflicts by serving as an alert system for those countries where the rule of law, respect for human rights is, uh, is taken, uh, has failed. And whereas the Peace and Security Council deals with conflicts as they materialize and tries uh, to uh, find a solution uh, to those conflicts. Now, having established this uh, framework and looking at the historical, sociological, and legal factors that have contributed to the shift in norms and principles regarding the maintenance of peace and security in Africa and the role played by the successive Pan-Africanist intergovernmental organizations, the Organization of African Unity First, and now the African Union. I would like to turn to what I would characterize as the three phases of the evolution of the approaches, mechanisms, and legal principles established under these two successive uh, African intergovernmental organizations for the maintenance of peace and security in Africa. The first phase was the one relating to the system of conflict resolution established under Article 19 of the OAU Charter in 1963, and the Commission of Mediation, Conciliation, and Arbitration, which was created under a protocol adopted in 1964 in Cairo, Egypt. The best way to describe uh, the OAU Commission on Mediation, Conciliation, and Arbitration is perhaps to say that it was stillborn. It actually died of irrelevance, institutional irrelevance, before it was ever implemented, because it exclusively focused on interstate conflicts and had no provision for internal conflicts uh, whatsoever. And although internal conflicts uh, were actually uh, becoming uh, more and more widespread in Africa, uh, the Commission was not able to deal with them nor was it able to deal even with interstate conflicts because no disputes had ever been referred to the commission by states. And uh, although it was not formally abolished, the OAU decided to abolish its permanent bureau and the commission itself uh, consequently disappeared. 
it is actually never mentioned it anywhere, and I believe that it has been totally forgotten even in the history books of the OAU. The second phase or attempt at the pan-African level is still under the OAU uh, to create a mechanism that would be able to deal with the conflicts in Africa was the Cairo Declaration on Conflict Prevention, Management and Resolution, adopted almost 30 years after the adoption of the uh, Mediation and Conciliation uh, Protocol, also of Cairo, uh, in 19, this one was adopted in 1993. The declaration acknowledged that the establishment of the mechanism was motivated by the need to bring a new institutional dynamism to the process of dealing with conflicts in the continent. This was an implicit recognition of the failure of the previous commission. But the unacknowledged motivation behind the creation of this new mechanism and uh, the reason which actually inspired it was that most of the conflicts in Africa were by the 1990s internal conflicts and not interstate conflicts. A major characteristic and perhaps the main weakness of the new Cairo mechanism to distinguish itself from the old one of the commission was that it was based on and was explicitly to be guided by the principles and objectives of the OAU Charter. Uh, this limited the capacity of the organization uh, to interfere uh, in the internal affairs of its member states, as I said earlier. Uh, these principles and objectives uh, were recalled in paragraph 14 of the Cairo Declaration, including the principle of non-interference, uh, respect of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of member states, and the inviolability of borders inherited from uh, colon colonial powers. So, the fact that these principles and rules were integrated into the uh, declaration and were used as the basis of the new mechanism seems to have actually undermined it from the very beginning uh, the effectiveness of the mechanism. But the mechanism also suffered uh, from a further uh, problem which was an inbuilt problem also uh, from the very beginning of its creation. And this problem was the fact that the mechanism was supposed to function on the basis of the consent of the parties to a conflict and the cooperation of such parties with the mechanism. It is my view that this requirement uh, for the consent of the parties to the conflict sounded the death knell of the Cairo mechanism. If you 
put together the need for the consent of the parties and the prohibition of any interference in the internal affairs of a member state by the organization, then it is hard to imagine how the organization could actually involve itself in internal conflicts and in the resolution of such internal conflicts because it would require to have the consent of all the parties involved in the conflict and it would not be able definitely to interfere in the internal conflict at its own initiative. So because of these requirements, the mechanism failed to have any impact whatsoever on the most murderous and destructive conflicts in the continent during the 1990s, namely Rwanda, Somalia, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, just to mention a few. But on the basis of this mechanism and of the work of the Organization of African Unity, some observer missions were deployed in Burundi, Central African Republic, and the Côte d'Ivoire. Of course, faced with the lack of effectiveness of its own mechanism, the OAU had to do something about this, and the OAU resorted with regard to the majority of the African conflicts in the 1990s to the fallback position that it had already provided for in the Cairo Declaration. Indeed, the Cairo Declaration foresaw the need uh, to seek the assistance or, where appropriate, the services of the UN under the general terms of the UN Charter in cases where internal conflict is required, collective international intervention and policing. In other words, the OAU was compelled to resort to the outsourcing of the resolution of the conflicts in Africa. It outsourced them to the United Nations. We will come back to this issue of outsourcing towards the end of, the of this lecture and examine to what extent it still exists under the African Union. Given the failures or the attempted uh, or the failed attempts uh, under the OAU of devising appropriate mechanisms uh, for the settlement of the chronic conflicts in various parties of the continent, it could be argued that the principles of the African Union on the right of intervention and on the abolition of non-interference by the organization itself could not have come at a more appropriate moment because they were actually adopted at the very beginning of the 21st century when there were a number of conflicts, internal conflicts, raging in many parts of Africa. But what has become of these principles and rules? Have they been implemented on the ground? One could say that there has been a qualitative jump 
uh, as compared to the OAU. But is this qualitative jump being translated into an actual and physical jump? Or is the outsourcing of the resolution of conflicts in Africa to the UN or to other entities is still the reality today? To provide an answer to these questions, one will have to turn to the Constitutive Act of the African Union, and particularly to its Peace and Security Council, and to the protocol that was concluded among the African states uh, to describe the functions, the objectives, and the principles uh, of this council. And to assess to what extent these instruments are being harnessed today to deal with the resolution of conflicts in Africa or with the maintenance of peace and security in the continent in general. The Peace and Security Council of the African Union, according to the protocol, is to be guided by the principles enshrined in the Constitution of the African Union, the Charter of the United Nations, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It shall in particular be guided by principles of international law, such as the peaceful settlement of disputes and conflicts, and by mechanisms uh, of early response to contain crisis situations and to prevent them from developing into full-blown conflicts. It will also be inspired by the need for respect for the rule of law, uh, respect for fundamental human rights and freedoms, the sanctity of human life and respect for international humanitarian law. Uh, the Peace and Security Council will also uh, take into account the interdependence between socio-economic development and the security of peoples and states in Africa. But one of the most important principles which the Peace and Security Council is meant to put into action is the right of the Union to intervene in a member state pursuant to a decision of the Assembly of Heads of State and Government in respect of grave circumstances uh, which have taken place in such a state, especially if war crimes have occurred if genocide has occurred, or if crimes against humanity have occurred in such a member state. And this right of intervention of the organization is complemented by the right of member states to request intervention from the Union in order to restore peace and security uh, in its own country. So, let us take some examples 
uh, or let's take as an example these two principles uh, in order to gain time and see to what extent the right of the union to intervene in a member state in respect of grave circumstances such as war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity, and the right of a member state to request intervention from the Union have been implemented and acted upon by the Organization of African, by the, by the African Union uh, since its creation in 2001. The ground is for the exercise of the right to intervene as currently envisaged in Article 4H of the Constitutive Act of the African Union is restricted, as I said earlier, to grave circumstances. And of course, uh, the categories of grave circumstances uh, that are described there are categories of uh, crimes uh, which are defined in international law. Uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, are well-known concepts in international law. So the Peace and Security Protocol acknowledges that under its Article 7e, the powers of the Council to recommend to the Assembly of Heads of State and Government of the African Union intervention on behalf of the Union in a member state in respect of such grave circumstances as defined in relevant international conventions and instruments. <clears throat> and of course what's meant by this reference to relevant conventions and instruments is the international conventions on the law of war, the Hague and Geneva conventions, as well as the additional Geneva protocols, the UN convention on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide, the statutes of the UN international criminal tribunals for former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and of the International Criminal Court. So the existence of grave circumstances uh, is not something that's going to be determined in a totally independent manner by the Peace and Security Council. It will be determined by them on the basis of a finding that war crimes, genocide, or crimes against humanity, as defined in international legal instruments, have occurred or are about to occur in a member state. The Council will then recommend intervention by the Union to the Assembly of Heads of State and Government, which is empowered to take the final decision on this matter. The wording of Article 4H of the AU Constitutive Act clearly limits the possibility of intervention in a member state by the Union to these three specific circumstances. If those three grave circumstances did not exist or were not considered 
to be in the process of arising, for example, in the opinion of the Peace and Security Council and the Assembly, then the Union would not have the right to intervene in a member state unless the, such a state requested the Union to intervene in order to maintain peace and security in its own country. So that is where Article 4J of the Constitutive Act of the African Union becomes relevant. But equally relevant to the scope of Article 4H is the definition of intervention for the uh, purpose of the African Union. Article 13 of the Peace and Security Protocol provides that for the Peace and Security Council to perform its responsibilities with respect to the deployment of peace support missions and intervention, there will be an African standby force to be established by the African Union. So, if for the purposes of the right of intervention under Article 4H, uh, the protocol says a standby force will be established. This means that in the AU, intervention is used only in the sense of coercive action involving armed force in a member state without the consent of the government of that state. Of course, it is only under the three grave circumstances that I have just described. But what are the implications of this right to intervene for the law of the UN Charter and for international law in general? Because we find here, for the first time in the history of regional organizations, a principle which allows a regional organization to intervene in a forceful manner in member states. Would the African Union undertake enforcement action in a member state without prior authorization by the UN Security Council? Are the forces of the African Union ready to effect military intervention in situations involving massive violations of human rights and humanitarian law. As you know, the UN Charter prohibits the threat or use of force by states individually or collectively against the territorial integrity or political independence of other states. There are two exceptions uh, to this prohibition which are contemplated in the UN Charter. The first one relates to the right of individual or collective self-defense in case of an armed attack against a member of the United Nations. The second exception pertains to the system of collective security under which the Security Council may, if necessary, take military enforcement action to maintain or restore 
international peace and security after having determined that a threat to the peace, a breach of the peace, or an act of aggression has occurred. In the exercise of this prerogative of the Security Council, the Security Council may utilize regional organizations, such as the African Union, for enforcement action under its authority. However, the Charter prohibits such regional organizations from undertaking enforcement action at their own initiative and without the authorization of the Security Council, the only exception here being measures adopted against the so-called enemy states, or in the case of regional arrangements, action is directed against the renewal of aggressive policy on the part of such an enemy state. But the concept of enemy state is obsolete today although it is a notion that is still in the Charter of the United Nations. So the scope of this prohibition must be assessed in the light of the other Charter provisions, particularly Articles 52 and 54, which deal with regional arrangements, such as the African Union, and their activities with regard to the maintenance of international peace and security. But I think that we can more easily find the answer to this question is in Article 17 of the AU Peace and Security Protocol, which deals specifically with the relationship of the Peace and Security Council of the AU with the United Nations and other international organizations and provides an appropriate answer uh, to the issue of the uh, undertaking of enforcement action by the AU with or without the authorization of the United Nations. Indeed, the protocol states that in the fulfillment of its mandate, uh, the Peace and Security Council of the African Union will cooperate and work closely with the UN Security Council, which has the primary responsibility, and it is the protocol of the African Union that says that the UN Security Council has the primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security. And the protocol further provides that wherever necessary, recourse will be made to the United Nations, that's by the AU and by the AU uh, uh, Security, Peace and Security Council, to provide the necessary financial, logistical, and military support for the African Union's activities in the promotion and maintenance of peace, security, and stability in Africa, 
And for that purpose, the protocol establishes that the Peace and Security Council and the chairperson of the AU Commission shall always maintain close and continued interaction with the UN Security Council, its African members, as well as with the Secretary General of the United Nations. And this could include uh, periodic meetings between the two councils or their members, and regular con consultations on questions of peace, security, and stability in Africa. One could therefore argue that under these provisions, the African Union and its constitution clearly recognize that the primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security in Africa and elsewhere in the world lies squarely with the Security Council of the United Nations. But while fulfilling its mandate, which includes the power to recommend to the African heads of state intervention in a member state, the AU Peace and Security Council shall cooperate and work closely with the UN Security Council. So it follows from this that there is a recognition in the AU and by this Pan-African Intergovernmental Organization that it is determined to act in the case of conflicts in Africa. But it is determined to act within the parameters of the UN Charter, including the provisions of the Charter on the need for authorization by the UN Security Council whenever the African Union has to implement its right to intervene for humanitarian reasons in its member states. So, this determination by the African Union to work within the parameters of the Charter of the United Nations is further reinforced, in my view, by the clear reference in Article 17, Paragraph 2, to the provisions of Chapter 8 of the UN Charter on the role of regional organizations, as well as by the obligation imposed on the Peace and Security Council of the African Union, and particularly on the chairperson of the AU Commission, to maintain close and continued interaction with the UN Security Council, as well as with the Secretary General of the United Nations, on questions of peace, security, and stability in Africa. But this willingness to act within the parameters of the Charter of the United Nations, does this mean that the African Union will continue and perpetuate the system that I had mentioned before of outsourcing the maintenance of peace and security in Africa to the United Nations? My answer would be a qualified no. I would say no because the AU is today involved in joint peacekeeping operations with the United Nations 
in various conflict areas in Africa. And the AU was actually the first organization to have the peacekeeping forces or the peace uh, uh, a, uh, observers, the observers on the ground, much before the United Nations. So I believe that we have passed from a system of outsourcing under the OAU, Organization of African Unity, to a system of joint peacekeeping operations in which the African Union is the first organization that acts with respect to conflicts in Africa. But this action is afterwards complemented by uh, action by the United Nations. And the reason why I have qualified uh, my answer is because in light of the is because of the limited capacity of the African Union in terms of logistics, financial resources, and peacekeeping, peace-informed capabilities uh, at its disposal. Indeed, if you look at Article 17 again of the Peace and Security Protocol of the African Union, it is acknowledged that uh, where necessary, uh, recourse will be made to the United Nations to provide the necessary financial, logistical, and military support for the African Union's activities in the promotion and maintenance of peace and stability in Africa. This would be, of course, in keeping with the provisions of uh, the United Nations Charter. So, to conclude, I would say that it is most likely that for the foreseeable future, the African Union will most often act either in conjunction with the United Nations or as a surrogate regional organization under Chapter 8 of the UN Charter in matters requiring enforcement action in a member state. It is not, in my view, a mean achievement that in contrast to its predecessor, the Organization of African Unity, this new Pan-African Intergovernmental Organization has at least equipped itself with the power to intervene in member states to safeguard African populations against wholesale slaughter or massive violations of human rights. When one reads the principles of the AU Constitutive Act and those of the Protocol on Peace and Security in Africa, one cannot fail to see that the norms and principles that have been put into place by the African Union constitute a major accomplishment, not only on paper, I would say, but also in, in terms of change of attitudes, in terms of change of norms and rules that enables the organization to deal with the chronic situations of internal conflict 
in the African continent. Of course, it might be argued that the reality on the ground today in many African conflicts does not match this optimistic conclusion, nor do the innovative principles and rules of the AU constitution clearly translate into actual action to tackle the endemic internal conflicts in the continent. It cannot, however, be denied that in enacting these rules and principles and in creating the Peace and Security Council, the African Union has taken a first step and an important one to have at its disposal the legal mechanisms and instrumentalities to deal with the conflicts in Africa. And as the Chinese proverb says, a long journey always starts with a small step. 